He's big. He's red. His feet stick out the bed. Peter Crouch. Peter Crouch. He's big. He's red. His feet stick out the bed. Best thing Peter Crouch has done since leaving Liverpool. I think we can all agree that's what his house is. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt. Welcome to the latest in our series of spoiler special podcasts. And this one is dedicated to one of the best films of the year, one of the best horror films of the year. It is Remy Week's His House, which is available right now to few on Netflix cracking film uh so cracking in fact that i decided to give it the spoiler special treatment after watching it and here to dig into the film but hopefully not my walls that would be terrible uh our two colleagues of such lethal cunning helen o'hara how are you i'm very well thank you i don't understand the peter crouch joke but yeah. <laughs> peter crouch he's referenced in the film they they even sing the chant the peter crouch oh, okay chant yeah no i remember that film. but like okay yeah. I thought I thought there was some his house like it was a phrase that was associated with him or something. All right, oh, you Peter on. Crouch. You when you when the ward off evil, you have Peter Crouch. In fact, Peter Crouch could have you know been one of the Simil- evil yeah, demon type things in this movie because right. he's six feet seven and he's got his yeah. arms are at right angles and you know he's okay. a terrifying sight for defenses, <laughs> of course. <laughs> I would have loved that. It would have made a very scary scene significantly less scary. So. <laughs> What with Peter Crouch doing the robot in the corner of the kitchen? Actually, I'll take that back. That, that is scary. <laughs> Listen, I'm all, I'm all for a bit of Crouching. You know, I, I saw him score some cracking goals in the flesh at Anfield, uh, including a wonderful overhead kick and a 3-0 win over Newcastle on, uh, I believe it was New Year's Day a few years ago. Oh, what a man. What a legend. What a goat. Ooh. Anyway, speaking of men and legends and goats... Amon Warman is here as well. How are you, sir? <laughs> that is the best segue you've ever given me, Chris. Hello. I know. I'm re- I immediately regretted it. <laughs> I, was, I was setting off down the uh, down the path, and I was like, oh, this is going to be a compliment, isn't it? I don't want to do this, but I feel dirty now. But anyway, welcome. Hello. How's, how's it going? <laughs> yeah, it is going well. This is excellent small talk. We've really worked on it. We really, really have. How are you? Yes, I am also good. Read. Turn page. Oh, now ask about weather. This is what you asked me on the to the podcast for, right? For, for this scintillating repartee. <laughs> uh, anyway, I have just been for a run, so Amazing. I need some time to get my breath back and restore my equilibrium, and uh, have three Kit Kats. So, <laughs> before you hear us giggling idiots talk about his house, let's hear from the writer and director of the film, Remy Weeks. Uh, I caught up with him uh, sadly on the dread. Zoom, I think it was. I think we caught up on Zoom, so apologies for that. The sound does dip out a couple of times, if I recall correctly, on this one. We covered a lot of ground in this interview. So if you have not seen His House, then highly to your nearest Netflixery, watch His House, and then come back here and press play. For the rest of you who have seen this film, enjoy. Delighted to be joined on this very, very special Spoiler special, I keep doing I keep saying special too many times these intros for His House by the director of the film, Remy Weeks. How are you, sir? I am very well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm all right. I'm not too bad. Uh, we're doing this just before the movie hits cinemas and it hits Netflix in about a week or so, but it's it's on this, it's now surfing this incredible wave of, of great reviews. You must be, you must be fairly happy. Um, I don't, I've tried not to read reviews, so I'm not 100% sure what they're saying, but my grandma called me the other day and she was like, you get it all from me. So I guess she's read something good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, precisely. No, they're, they're good. They're, they're very, very good indeed. And uh, because this is a spoiler special, we're going to be getting into it right from the off. And I usually start these things with the big question that's on everybody's lips. And the big question for me after I saw his house is, how did Peter Crouch end up in your movie? He's one of the financiers. No, he, um, <laughs> it was just something that I'm sure you'll have noticed that football tends to be a bonding moment between men of many different cultures and many different places of in the world. Football tends to bring people together. Or men, at least. Yes, and uh, and there, of course, we have we have Ball in the in the pub bonding. It's one of the first times we really see him bonding with people, and you know who better to bond over than Peter Crouch? 
totally. And just just to be clear, when I say football brings men together, it doesn't seem to <laughs> include me because I am not really a huge football fan. And maybe I brought it in because I do notice whenever I am working or I'm on set or I'm going to a recce, like one of the main things that guys tend to like to talk about in, in the car or to bring them together is football. And I always feel incredibly anxious and left out because I am unable to um, catch up with any of the references or any of the talking, talking <laughs> points. And yeah, it brings me back to not being picked at school for the football team. So. <laughs> Indeed. But is there is there a sense of that even in the movie in terms of, of Ball's reaction to it? Because all the way through the film, he is trying, for obvious reasons, I think he's trying to bury his past. He's trying to forget where he came from and what he did to get here. But he's trying to integrate himself into the culture, I think, more than, than Real might be. You know, he goes to Gap and buys whatever he sees on the, on the wall behind him. And he goes to a pub and maybe he doesn't even like football but he sees it as a chance to to connect yeah i mean the two characters for me were representations of two diverging points of view when you're trying to trying to move forward in a new culture or in a culture mm. where you're not you're not part of the i guess the majority when you're you're on the outside and there's that there's the one side of you that wants to assimilate that wants to fit in and then there's that other side of you that refuses to give up the things that are important to you and actually wants to celebrate the things that are important to you and your past. And so the two, the two characters take these separate views on moving forward. In fact, I uh, I found the relationship all the way through the movie between Ball and Real really really interesting because there is a there is a version of this movie you know. I guess it's called The Shining in a way, but there's yeah. a version of this movie where where Ball gives into his madness, or Real is corrupted by the the Night Witch, and it becomes a story about ultimately one of them going insane or a marriage falling apart. And I think the thing that 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 I really loved about his house is the way that ultimately they come together as a as a single unit, and they they decide to draw a line, not necessarily under the past because they're constantly surrounded by reminders of the past, but they draw a line under it and they go, okay, we're going to move forward and and, and be stronger together. Can you can you talk about that relationship and, and that resolution, I guess? Totally. I'm, a, I'm a big horror fan. Um, I love horror movies and I, I love all... I, I really enjoy anxious films, I guess. <laughs> Like yeah. um, Hitchcock is one of my favorite filmmakers in the world, and I yeah. love the way he, he builds tension and sus- suspense. But similarly, I'm not really a nihilist. I don't necessarily feel that as much. And, and I love horror movies w- which really go dark and stay dark and never get light again. But for me, especially when I'm saying a film on the immigrant experience, I it didn't feel like I wanted to have a nihilistic viewpoint of the world. I wanted to show a world that that gets better, that someone can recover, that someone can, um, can, can move forward. I think that's very important, especially when you're talking about things that are about mental health and about facing trauma i mean which is something that you know they literally do i mean they they have literal demons in this and they face them down and uh, you know i've seen the movie a couple of times now and i'm fascinated by the way that you you escalate the supernatural experiences they have but they react to them in a way I think that's unlike a, a, most horror films I, I have seen. You know, Rial is very, very early on. She's very much, okay, this is a, the, a Night Witch. And Ball knows full well, of course, that's what it is as well. But there's not that horror film thing necessarily, like cliche, where they fight against the acknowledgement of the supernatural. They lean into it very much early on. Um, 
I thought that was interesting. And also the way that you seed gradually the revelation for us, the audience, of what happened with Nyagak. I, I think that's very, very interesting as well. So one of the big notes I've, I've got throughout the making of the film from people like the producers and whatnot was their concern over Rial, Rial's character. And one of the things I got a lot, um, and especially in the editing process, was why isn't she afraid? And someone did say a whole film only works when the, when the woman's screaming. And without her being afraid, you don't have... The whole film can never be would never be scary. It doesn't make sense for for Bo to be afraid and we are not to be afraid. And that was something I got a lot. But I, I do think a big part of the film was how we process our past. And for Bo, he needed to shut the door on it completely and to move forward and not acknowledge it and bury it where he can. And Rial's character was someone who was, it was important for her to, to not forget, but actually to uncover it and maybe even going too far and wanting to reprocess it again and again. And those two mm. diverging viewpoints is very much the crux of the film. And so it's really important for me, for her character at least, um, to, Never to, to always acknowledge that there's a ghost or there's something in the house and to almost embrace it and to understand it and to dig into it to the frustration of Bowles' character. That was for me, when writing it, that was like the fun part of my, writing this film was that you do get characters who treat something spooky in the house in very unusual ways. Because they, they treat it as, a, as they... they absolutely believe in it. They treat it matter-of-factly. Um, Bull's attitude towards it is really interesting when he just me like, you can't hurt me. Uh, pictures can't hurt me. But what that does is, but it can hurt them with with evocations of of the past. It can hurt them with by conjuring up memories of of what happened. And one of the really interesting strains in the movie, uh, Rial says it very early on, is essentially that what man does to his fellow man is far worse than anything the apath can do to them. Yeah. And we see that towards the end of the movie, you have the shocking sequence where we see, or we, you know, we seem to see what happened to prompt them to try and leave South Sudan. And can, again, is that something you can talk about in terms of um, depicting the, the, the human horrors and keeping the, 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 the tragedy of what happened to them uh, on the back burner? Yeah, I mean, those scenes were some of the hardest things to shoot in the film. Um, and for me, trying to work out what to shoot and how to shoot it, I did. it was quite important to me to always stick to the character's point of view. So throughout that sequence, it's mostly, we're really mostly on their shooting their heads and watching it from their perspective. And what we do see is more peripheral. You see moments, glimpses of things, and I, th- I feel like that's kind of all you need to see. I think for a horror, a horror film like this one, for me, and, and I think it's throughout the film, I didn't, and it's weird saying this, because I am a horror fan, but at the same time, I wasn't, this wasn't a film I wanted to do things like gore or violence. It wasn't that stuff. Well, I was like actually enjoying some movies for this film, it just didn't feel right. And so a lot of the things we see, it's more just glimpses of things and kind of let the audience, audience's mind kind of work things out themselves. Um, mm. That's important to me. The, uh, the colour red, I think, is only glimpsed... Um Bol and Rial both wear red at various points in the movie, but apart from that, you, you stay away from that colour. Yeah, I think, well, we the one scene where I use it a lot is in the kind of dream sequence in the ocean and it's the mm. red of the sky. Um, yeah. 
But yeah, like, and, and it's not because I'm, I'm, not, I'm not squeamish about, about like, I, I, I love gore in black films. Quentin Tarantino does it so well, and it's always so much fun. Um, and and I'm, I'm, I'm here for it. I love it. I will, when I was younger, I used to do crazy stuff with gore. But for this film, it just it wasn't, it wasn't for me. It didn't feel right. I wanted to talk to you about how you seeded a couple of things throughout the film. So I think from the off, we're fairly confident as audience members that something tragic has happened, that there's a young girl. Um, and we, we see, we see, you know, literally the first shot in the movie is, is Ball and, and Carrie and Nyagak. And uh, she's not with them when they get to England. So we're filling in the blanks. Something happened to their daughter. Can you talk about introducing the audience to the truth and parsing out that information when it's right for us to know that she wasn't her daughter, that Ball had done this thing that I think the movie asks, has he done something that's unforgivable and can you push past that? And I think it's really interesting the way that you, 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 you deploy that information when you, when you do. Um, so a big theme of this film is how we, well, we, for the audience at least, how we judge immigrants and our expectations of immigrants and especially asylum seekers. And a a great book that came out that I read during the writing of this um, film was The Good Immigrant and how, especially in countries like ours in the UK, we only feel comfortable about immigrants when they are quite clearly and one note good and safe and acceptable and that when you start to portray an immigrant with flaws then our liking of immigrants shrinks completely and it, it can be really the performative nature of being another in the country where you have to present yourself as good can be quite, I mean, striking. So it's, when it comes to the structure, I think it was for me, it was definitely something I wanted the audience to have to contend with, this notion that you're at first sympathetic for the two characters for reasons that I guess any audience can understand. It's quite black and white. Like when um, a couple loses a child, it's, incredibly sympathetic, but then by the end, we muddy that lens of the two characters. And so you have to contend with the idea that actually they're not black and white sympathetic characters, they're just people who have to deal with things that are often bigger than themselves. And the people that come out afterwards are complicated, like, like, like yeah. anyone. And I guess that's okay. And also, speaking of things and you, know, you see throughout the movie, you have these wonderful surrealist passages. You, we talked about one slightly earlier on, which is the, 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 the sort of the dream sequence where a ball is, is eating and then suddenly you pull out and he's in the ocean and he has one of his first encounters in the dreamscape. Um, then there's obviously later on where he communes with the, with the apath as well. I love those sequences. And, um, you know, you. knowing... You know, was it an, a, a, an instinctual thing to know when to see to us at the movie? Was there more? Was there more stuff like that in the film that you had to pair back? Yeah, actually, there was. There was actually an, a really interesting dream sequence at the beginning of the film. It was actually in the original script, but and we shot it as well. But we found that I guess many there's many different reasons why we decided to change that beginning. I think mostly. There's something, and this goes beyond this film. I think it's something I do normally in the short films and, and the commercials work I've, I've done in the past is that I really like when you, when things are very um, ordinary, like I like non-core, because part of, part of the reason I love the banal is that when you do break, I guess, the walls of reality, it's just... The, the feeling you get from that is really, really something exciting. Um, and so 
when you begin a film with a, 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 a brilliant dream sequence, you don't have that normality. You just have a brilliant dream sequence. And yeah. so there's nowhere to climb to. And, and, and we just felt it was so much... It had that sequence when you pull back in the kitchen and you're in it, into a dream sequence has so much more strength and you really don't know that's about to happen. Yeah. And so, yeah, we, we took it out. Um, just delving into because you mentioned the original script there as well. So did you, because obviously uh, Felicity Evans and Toby Venables are credited with the script as well. Did you write the script with them? Did you rewrite them? How did, how did that happen for you? So when I was doing commercials and stuff, the production company I was signed to shared office space with two producers, Ed and Martin of Star Child. And every time I went in there for work, I'd see them and we'd talk about how one day I'd love to make movies and they were telling me what they were up to. And one of those times they mentioned that they had a, a project, a concept, which was um, to do a horror film about the immigration experience that Felicity and Toby had come up with. But the, they were, I guess they, were, they weren't getting... I, th- I think they were hitting a wall. They weren't quite getting the story, what they wanted. And they asked me, would I like to pitch them my take? What would be, what would be my version of the story? And so I, mm-hmm. I pretty much just pitched them, I guess, the film that you see, which is a psychological story about a married couple and how they survive after surviving and moving on from the trauma. I think one of the themes as well of the film is, you know, you have this idea that they can't leave their house and that they have the horror that they have to contend with every day at the hands of the of the Night Witch. But also you, you talked about, you know, wanting to capture the immigration experience, the asylum seeker experience. And yeah. the, the film is horrific in, in that regard as well, because it boxes them in and everywhere they go, there is racism and, you know, they're struggling on 74 quid a week and Every time Ball made a purchase, I was totting up my head. <laughs> you spent 21 quid in clothes and gap, man. What do you, what do you, yeah. you haven't got much left. And, you know, I think you're you're fantastic, I think, at capturing the sort of infidious horror of their overall situation as well as the, 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 the micro of, of where they are with the Night Witch. Yeah, and I think that was the... When I, got, when I felt like I knew what the story was, was when I was reading... Basically, this film, when I was developing it, it really began with research and reading about the asylum-seeking procedural and the processes in this country and learning that when you're an asylum-seeker, you, you have to follow these really draconian rules if, if, you, if you want to stay in this country. And one of them, or a few of them, is that you ha- you're forced into a house that you can't leave and you can't get a job and you get a really small allowance and that when I read that I suddenly it was suddenly the potential that was so exciting because when you tell a story about a haunted a haunted house or haunted anything one of the main I guess one of the main things as an audience member you feel is why are you still there (laughs) <laughs> get out, <laughs> you idiot! <laughs> and I, I, yeah. I, and I like—I suddenly liked the the potential of the fact that you, as an seeker, you're not—you can't get, you can't leave, and there's so much more at stake than simply leaving the house. Um, and that was just really dramatically rich to me. But you also have these sequences, for example, whenever a, a ball goes to the the office to ask Mark to relocate, and Mark all the way through this movie, you sense that there's maybe maybe he's a good guy, but he also says things like you know, "Oh, be one of the good ones," which is casually racist at best. And you you know have the next door neighbor who literally tells him to leave and get out, and then you have also that really discomforting sequence where Rial is abused by those three young black kids as well, which I thought was, was really interesting. So you're, you know, you're kind of capturing the, this idea that they're, they're hemmed in on all sides by, by all kinds of prejudice. Um, yeah, no, I, I think it was, I think so much of what's in the film is based on the things 
that was researched. And so, yeah, it, it was really important. But it was also equally important to um, make it about the characters. Like, there's a version of the story yeah. where it's just like, oh, like, it, it's always almost like a sermon. Like, like, this is bad and this is bad. But it's always, like, from the perspective, I always wanted to keep it from the perspective of the characters. So, for example, um, Bo, Bo's character sees a much more optimistic view of where they are compared to Rial, who, who sees a more negative, a more dangerous and um, un- uninhabitable place than, than he does. I need to ask about the, the Apeth as well, the, the Night Witch sure. itself, uh, which is a really fascinating twist on a on a movie monster uh yeah where did that come from i, I did it i did a little bit oh, of no. like googling earlier on and uh and there's not a lot out there on the internet about it but you know they, they, no. they'll say that you know it is a it is a spirit that you know the the, the dinka people do believe in and uh so yeah. is, did you did you draw upon did you draw upon that in a way was that something that 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 you, did, did you know about it did you do some research how, how did it come about yeah um it did some, did some research I, I mean i didn't know about it before working on the film but um yeah i think it was very for me this film is very much a culture clash of stuff that the characters would have brought with them from the stories of their childhood and the their experiences in in this new space and so it was really um a mishmash or a weird culture clash of references which was very exciting for the um, the team to to create whether that's the the creatures or the music or the um the the colors and the looks like it's in and then the costume as well it's it's we really had fun showing the different layers of what i guess is South Sudanese and what's English and what's somewhere in between. And it feels like such a fresh, fresh screen monster as well in terms of, you know, what it can do, how it torments Ball and Real uh, also. And of course, Badly Dispatch It, um, very last thing I wanted to ask very, very quickly was about the, the final shot. I'm always fascinated to see how directors start and begin movies. You said that the movie began initially with the dream sequence, but it ends with Ball and Real in their house surrounded by the ghosts of the past, but the final shot is them almost looking at the camera, looking at the audience in a way. Can you talk about yeah. the significance of that? Oh, I don't know if I can. Um, <laughs> I think that, I mean, I guess the audience, what I, I've noticed about myself is that I don't like when the camera is on the outside. I, I, I generally like to shoot things where the camera's within the action inside. If there's two characters talking, the camera's generally inside within them. Um, I think it goes, it's the same for the ending. I guess I'm saying Mm. that, I feel like it's a kind of ending that people have their own points of view and I don't want to ruin it for everyone. Of course. Of course. <laughs> Nicely straddled. You straddled the fence there beautifully, I have to say. Uh, oh, Remy, you. it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thanks so of much course. indeed. And, uh, and, and congratulations once again on the film. Thanks, man. See you later. Thank you very much indeed. Okay, so that was Remy Weeks. And now let's talk about his house. Uh, so like I say, I went into this film. Uh, I was assigned to review it for Empire Magazine. I watched it. Uh, expecting it to be decent because I'd heard some good stuff, but I was blown away by its combination of scares and social comment and all sorts of stuff. I thought it was uh, absolutely terrific. What about you guys? Yeah, same. I mean, I, I was expecting good things, but not this good. The trailer wigged me out. It was proper scary. I like Amon. I'm a wimp, uh, vis-a-vis mm-hmm. horror, and um, and so I, you know, I knew I was kind of prepared. I was, I had girded my loins for that, and I also, you know, I expected some kind of social commentary because you don't make a film about refugees and ignore that. Certainly, if you have half a brain in your head, which which Weeks clearly does, even just from the trailer. So you know, high expectations, but absolutely blown away by how layered and how detailed it was, how it portrayed trauma, how it portrayed, you know, a quite literally hostile environment, um, and, and how it, it 
wove all that in with you know with horror tropes as well i just i I think it's brilliant i can't wait to see what he does next yeah yeah and i absolutely agree uh i had not watched the trailer because just no um afraid you can (laughs) yep and uh i was expecting good things i think that's part of the reasons why a part of the reason why i took the plunge because i don't tend to take the plunge on too many horrors i i'm very selective in that regard but I, i really wanted to see this and as I said on the pod a couple of weeks back, it did take me a couple of tries to get through it, but I'm glad that I did because this is definitely one of the best films of the year. And just how it takes the real world horror and amplifies it and extrapolates it and heightens it uh, in the horror setting, I think is really, really impressive. Agreed. So we're done here. Yeah, fantastic. Wow. That was a short special. We're all in agreement. His house is fantastic. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it first as a as a as a horror film in mm. the purest sense of the word, in terms of it as a fright factory and as a scare fest, because I think it works really really well on those terms mm. for about. It's only about ninety three minutes long. It really works. It works really well on those terms for about I'd say an hour of that, mm. and then it makes a really interesting decision. I think it does anyway. You may disagree. To stop being scary uh what about and i think that's a deliberate thing what about you guys what did you what did you make of it uh, in those terms yeah i agree and i think what's clever about it is uh that mix of kind of psychological horror and sort of straight up scary shit which i think is 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 an is a difficult trick actually to pull off and a difficult line some for some films to walk i, I think you're the fact is they're trapped in this house. Um, they have to stay there. That's a sort of condition of their entry into a quote-unquote safe country. It's uh, you know a product of this slightly hostile environment that they face here. There's the there's that kind of hostility, those kind of, you know, suspicious looks from people outside, sometimes outright hostility, mm-hmm. outright racism from people outside. So that all feeds into this kind of sense of paranoia, this sense of kind of claustrophobia, the, of the look with the walls closing in on you. Then the idea that there's something in there with you that isn't safe for you makes yeah. it even worse and, and kind of amps up the pressure. And so you've got, you know, you're, you're continually wondering is is he losing his mind, particularly him? But is he losing his mind? Is something going on here? Or is there something else? Is there something sinister? Is it coming from outside? Is it coming from all of these awful people who are sort of lurking nearby? And you don't quite know which way the film is going to go initially. And and I think that's to its credit. And yeah, it is really fucking scary. Just the, the classic mm. sort of, as soon as the light is turned off, there's somebody Oof. in the darkness. It's a, yeah. it's an old trope, but Jesus Christ, it works every single fucking time. I mean, <laughs> I'm not okay with it. No, no. Thank you, no. I can Mm-mm. tell by that sentence, Jesus Christ, it works every single fucking time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely right. You know, all those questions that you're asking, they're established from like the very first scene because the mm. very first scene is a dream sequence and then he wakes up. Um, so, yeah. so yeah. And I, I think also what's really good about the horror in this is the cinematography and the, the mix of practical and visual effects. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Because, you know, just peeling the wallpaper off the walls is just like, and just staring to like a black hole. Even that is just scares scares the life out of you as well um and we, again we spoke about this on the pod a couple of weeks ago but the way it transitions from real world to dream world mm-hmm. and the way in which it does that in a practical and visual way i was reading uh, about this film in preparation for this pod and apparently there were some scenes where they only had one shot at it in terms of how they're breaking down the set and you know just filming the, the, that scene where it zooms in on him he's having dinner and then it zooms out and he's sort of still where he is, but now surrounded by water. Apparently they had mm. one one shot to get that right and they nailed it. To do practical and visual effects on that on that level, I think they shot this on both on location and on the housing estate and on the sound stage. And the mix of all those elements is really, really effective and really mm. well done too. Yeah. Yeah. It's really scary, but I, I you're absolutely right to bring that transition up and also later on the sequence where Ball has a sort of communion with the mm. Apeth, uh, which we'll talk about in a second as well in terms of it being a really interesting new screen monster. And I just love the visual imagination on display. And Remy Weeks actually said that the the film did begin with something bigger and a more lavish dream sequence mm. initially. Um, but they decided that it 
it was better, I think, to lean into the mundanity of the situation. And that's one of the things about it. That 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 dream sequence, the bit where it pulls out and suddenly he's at sea and you got that that red flecked landscape and it's just mm. absolutely beautiful mm. but really unsettling. Uh, and then obviously the sequence where um, uh, Rial has that flashback and suddenly she finds herself back in the flashback in South yeah. Sudan. Those foldings, though, the way that it, it sort of uh, it lies the and blurs the line between reality and dreamscape is mm-hmm. really, really well done, and I think evidence of a really, really assured filmmaker. You know, and reminded me in a way of some of the the best, the most unsettling psychological horrors will tend to do that. You know, the yeah. some of the early Polanskis and some of the early Nightmare on Elm Streets tend to really do some that very, very well. Some of the best bits in, I mean, not to be reductive, but some of the best bits in Haunting of Hill House as well, because that's another story about trauma and yeah. grief and, you know, not being able to let go of the past. And I think those are all very, obviously very, very big themes here. But yeah, it's, it's so well put together and it's so cleverly put together and it keeps you so in their shoes at all times really with them, which I think is so important because, Mm. you know, it speaks to this, you know, this horrific trope in the media of demonizing refugees, of, of writing them off, of, you know, casting them aside, of people who actually vote for a hostile environment for the neediest people and the most desperate people in the world, which Mm -hmm. is just grotesque on a whole other level. And, and I feel like this, it's not a, a preachy film. It's not um, something that people are necessarily going to immediately realise, kind of what they're being told. But I feel like mm. it's a it's a film that reminds us of people's humanity and it reminds us of our shared kind of obligation to help each other. And mm. and like I say, this this kind of it, it it sort of brings the hostile environment into very literal terms because they are literally just surrounded by. Hostility. They're surrounded by anger. They're surrounded by suspicion. They're surrounded by envy. Even you know when you've got the the sort of um, estate agents going, my house isn't this big. You know, it's like I mean, it's not. This is not a mansion they're being given. They're not being put into some you know Mandalay esque gothic pile or something. You know, this is a run down, semi decrepit council house. If they are genuinely envious of that, then I would suggest that something's gone wrong in this entire country, and it's clear that something has. And I think it's it's really good that way. But then the film begins to narrow in on on trauma, I think, and, and, and narrow in mm. on on the the actual horrific experiences that these people have been through, and how it is haunting them in in quite a literal sense. And yeah, and and to look at their own responses in quite a nuanced way, I think. Absolutely, I think. Part of the reason why this film avoids the issues which other media have that you're speaking to, Helen, have had mm. is that this is a film about asylum seekers told from the perspective of asylum mm-hmm. seekers. That's rare. We don't really see that anytime sort of this issue is brought up. It's not from that viewpoint normally. Uh, so I think mm. that that's one way in which the film gets that right. And there's that, there's that oft used quote from Roger Ebert that uh, films are empathy machines. And Mm. this is definitely uh, a film in which I think by the end, you do feel a lot of empathy for these two characters. And just on the other point, you're saying, I love love how you're saying that this film is not preachy because I think that's absolutely right. I think they save what might have been a preachy moment if it came earlier in the film for the very final sort of seconds, very final scenes of the film. And I think putting it where they put that makes it all the more impactful because it just, rather than being preachy, it underlines what the film is about and what the film is trying to say in a very powerful way. And I really like the way, way they did that. In what way? Uh, in showing the uh, uh, refugees in the house at, at the end, I thought that scene really landed with me. And I think if they try to say that earlier in the film yeah. in a more uh, in a more heavy handed way. I just think it would have come across as heavy 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 handed. Mm-hmm. And I love yeah. films which have social commentary, but it's woven into everything rather yeah. than being forcibly yeah. fed it's, to you. Yeah, and it's, I think it's that, built into the bones here, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's really galling that that image, pretty much the last image of the movie, of all the ghosts of all the people that they they've known who have died, is on Netflix. <laughs> you click on the film 
And it comes up as one of the holding images for the movie. <laughs> but Mon, you're absolutely right, I think, about you know it being an empathy machine and generating a lot of empathy for, for mm-hmm. Ball and Rial to the point where, you know, because it absolutely places you in their shoes and absolutely places you right in the center of their experience. And it it, it forces you to ask difficult questions and, and to put yourself in their shoes and to th- ask yourself 74 quid a week could you live in 74 quid a week you know and the the ignominy and that they have to suffer on a on a daily basis you know of being called into a church and given a box of stuff yeah. biscuits that have you know, I, I thought I was looking at the. <laughs> this is the uh, the detail we get into in these podcasts. I was looking at the expiry date on the biscuits, and it was 2017, <laughs> I think. And I was looking at the biscuits, going, "Is that the, does that along with the Peter Crouch cameo, because Crouch has retired since? Does that set this in a specific time and place, or or are, are those biscuits massively out of date? But here, this is all you're going to get. So like it or lump it, and, and move on." These are the important questions you get when you subscribe <laughs> to the Empire Magazine spoiler this is it. special. But, you know, I was, and I said this to Remy Weeks, I was counting up every purchase that Ball made during the film when he goes to the Poundland store and he starts mm. buying hammers and stuff and going, what are you doing, mate? He goes to Gap. That, that outfit he buys in Gap costs 21 quid. That's, that's a third of your <laughs> weekly <laughs> money, pretty much. Mm. Um, so it, it forces you to, to, to sympathize with him absolutely and put yourself in their shoes and see things through their eyes. And it's really interesting that it does that because they're not, Ball in particular is not what he appears. They are not what they seem. Their relationship to Nyagak, the young girl who we think is their daughter all the way through, or at least mm-hmm. for a good portion of the movie, is not their daughter. And what Ball in particular does to her is. I think the film wants you to ask yourself, is this unforgivable? And the, at, the end, the, at the end of the movie, you have the empathy you, that the movie generates and that Shobei Derusu's fantastic performance generates, yeah. I think allows you as a viewer to go, all right, I forgive you and start your life again and have a, new, have, have a clean slate. As he says in the movie, we're born again, we will be new here. These are, these are uh, maxims that he returns to again and again and again throughout the movie. Um, I think it's really interesting. Those shifting sands, I think, are really interesting. Yeah, I think that's the, that's the big sort of twist that I figure is your your breaking point for the second the second half of the movie is that he went full Billy Zane and grabbed an innocent <laughs> child um, in order to get onto the lifeboat. Never go full Billy Zane Never unless, of course, <laughs> you're advising Derek Zoolander. Yeah, and look, I, th- I th- and I think it it, it is interesting because right, so it is essentially what Billy Zane does in Titanic, and in Titanic, you're just like, oh, you fucking bastard, oh, you how rotter. Are you- dare you <laughs> and in this one you're horrified it in the same way but you have so much more empathy for him uh, mm. than obviously James Cameron gave us um, in that film and and it's and it is really interesting because I think when they're on the run when they're trying to escape he's kind of telling himself that it will all be okay that he's essentially rescuing her and not just using her not just taking her away from her family not just you know, abducting her frankly he's he's kind of telling himself it'll be okay it's forgivable because i'm getting her out of this bad place i think he knows already it is it's not quite that simple but i think he's mm. at least telling himself the story and of course then you know the crossing of presumably the channel happens and and that that narrative falls apart and i think that's the big kind of fracture that leads to everything that follows i think trying to suppress that is is what brings out so much of what happens in this film. I think you're right. I think there is some kind of sense that certainly he has that, you know, there is no forgiveness, that he has to die, essentially. He's not reborn. He has to almost die, metaphorically, mm-hmm. to to kind of earn forgiveness for what he's done. But I, I don't think... I, I had no sense of any kind of judgment while watching the film. I was horrified that it happened, but I wasn't sort of horrified by him because it felt so desperate in the moment. Well, what I'll, what I'll say is very interesting. I talked about this a little bit with Remy Weeks is that he never becomes the bad guy. Mm. And I think a more cliched horror film, that's the moment that yeah. he turns into Jack Torrance. Exactly. And I think this film mm-hmm. in in a dozen different hands becomes, you know, a cheap low rent counterhouse shining. Yeah, yeah, it mm-hmm. absolutely does. With with Ball going loco and, you know, 
threatening Rial, which he does to an extent, but then he pulls himself back and their mm-hmm. their bond and their love for each other brings him through. And he's never, never the villain in those terms, which I thought was was very, very interesting. The thing which stuck out to me was a, you said a few minutes ago, but you were talking about uh, Ball being uh, in the gap and paying yeah. £21 for uh, some new clothes, yeah. um, which, as you correctly state, is about a third of their allowance. I just, speak, I just think that speaks to his desperation to assimilate, which is the mm-hmm. other sort of big thread of this film in terms of the integration and assimilation. That scene in particular is just when he's sort of staring at the white mannequin and mm. you can just feel that desperation to fit in. It's really powerfully done. And I just think, you know, again, the, the, the grounding of the, of the real world um, horror that is mm. the integration and assimilation and everything and the heightening of that is really, really well done. It actually reminded me of Get Out in terms of just how they, how both this film and that film extrapolate to really sort of heightened degrees, but mm. the social commentary comes through in a really powerful way. And the way, again, which his house really thinks about what these people go through on a day-to-day basis and puts it in the film in a really powerful way is just is something really stuck with me. And that yeah. scene in particular, uh, mm. really hit home for me. And just, you know, in terms of, you know, myself, like the desire to fit in the culture switching that we as black people do in different spaces. I mean, I have been lucky in that I've, I've grown up in the UK, but you definitely, depending on who you are around, act a certain way. Um, mm. And so the, the the moments where they are trying to assimilate and fit in, especially when it comes to bowl, really sort of yeah. had, I think, uh, an additional impact on me. That scene in the pub with the football chants is kind of heartbreaking. You just, you're, you know, you're desperate for him to be accepted. He's he's clearly so isolated and so alone in that moment. And, you know, and there's just, just even a, a tiny hint of connection, just singing the same chants mm. is just such a kind of... Mm-hmm. Lifeline, I think, for it's, it's, because football is a universal language. It is. It's, it's spoken mean, in every country yeah. in the world. It's yeah. yeah, yeah. And then on the flip side of that, you got um, Rial, and mm-hmm. I love how not only with Rial, but even with the kids that she goes to for help to find directions, it's all reinforcing the notion that black people are not a monolith. Yeah, and yep. have different, understandable viewpoints. At least. You know, Vial and Boldu, the kids are, you know, dicks really. Um, yeah. But it just, <laughs> it just goes They're to young. show. Hopefully they'll lo- learn, you know? I mean, hopefully. Yeah. Somebody needs to slap them upside the head and give them a talking <laughs> to, but hopefully. Um, but, uh, but yeah, um, that's something which we're always trying to enforce or reinforce not only on the big screen, but in real life as well. And I like that the film sort of made a point of displaying that mm. as well. I thought it was really interesting that Ball is the one who does try to assimilate. And there are whole portions of his attempts. Like he'll he'll just leave the house. So he goes out, comes back at the end of the day. Mm. You presume he's just either walked around or gone to the pub, but we don't see that apart from him buying the hammers and going to the gap and going to the pub. Once he starts get a little bit more, once he doesn't want to go home because of what's happening at home, he's out pretty much the whole live long day. Rial, when she goes out, she's not trying to assimilate and her experiences outside the house are the truly terrifying, insidious mm. type. So she goes out and she has that, there's that really trippy moment where she's trying to find the doctors and the, the, the avenues and the cul-de-sacs seem to be almost closing in or conspiring against her yeah. and she can't quite find a way out in the maze. It's, it's a little bit like The Shining as well. The maze is closing in around her. Then she has that frankly shocking encounter with the young kids who are just fucking dickheads and they'd be mm-hmm. put over someone's knee, quite frankly. <laughs> if you, uh, Chris, no. No? No. Corporal Good, punishment, no, Chris. No, no, no. Little bit of no. like a ruler on the knuckles. Just a little no. ruler on the just no, no. I didn't do any harm. <coughs> I'm totally fine. Good Lord. Oh my God. But you know, her negative experiences happen outside the house. Mm. His negative experiences happen inside the house. And ultimately, what the film is saying, of course, is that for all the powers and all the the evil of the, if you want to call it that, 
for all the powers of the Apeth, it's actually the human horrors that are the most unsettling mm-hmm. and the ones that stick with you Without the question. most. Without question. And, and it's an, an interesting contrast, isn't it? Their UK experience to what we see of their life in South Sudan. We see her with other people consistently yeah. and we only ever see him really with her. You know, So it's, it's an actual flip on their previous lives. Now, obviously, he would have had friends, he would have had family, he would have had people he hung out with, but we don't, we're not showing that in the film. And I think that's deliberate. And so to, to give him maybe that sense of isolation and being lost in his head in these, in these latter scenes and to give her a sense of what she's lost, I think, and, and give us, a, give us an impression of, of that. And the fact that she's then kind of, you know, semi abandoned, as you say, by him as well. He's just out all day and she's trying to figure things out on her own mm. in this very hostile environment. Um, so I think there's an interesting choice there in the way that they're both portrayed alone as well as together. You're right in the saying that you're su- surprised that it's, it's Bowl who's the one who's really trying to assimilate, I guess, when you think about Vial's story, because she has mm. that moment in the GP and the quote is when, when she's talking about the markings on her arm and yeah. Yeah. she says... I made these myself with a knife. These are two tribes where I'm from. They're both killing each other. Depending on which one you belong to, you mark yourself. I marked myself with both. I survived by belonging nowhere. So you think that of the two, she would be the one desperate to assimilate even more because Mm. to to find that sense of belonging. But I I really love sort of where they go with that character. And And she's also another character who in a lesser director's hands could have been unlikable, but the performance mm. and the direction she's given, you're always on her side um, throughout the entire thing. And again, that's just a mark of the excellent part of this film. But she does make a decision to belong at the end of the movie. She does make mm. a, a decision to, you know, this is, you know, the title of the film is his house and, you know, you could read it as it's Ball's house or it's the uh, Peth's house as well. But equally, it could be her house by the end of the mm-hmm. film because she's the she's the agent of, of change in a way. She's the one who mm-hmm. makes the decision to fight back against this thing. You know, Ball is ready to give in and give up and you no, know, she goes, No, we've 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 fought too hard, we've lost too much and uh, you know, maybe maybe there's an element of her in a very, very clever way, almost sitting back for a while, seeing the lie of the land before she commits to a decision either way. I I don't think it's so much sitting back as Take as, as it, it taking a moment. Like I don't think it's a deliberate. Let's wait and see. I think it's it's trauma. It's dislocation. It's alienation, and and it takes you know a certain mind of of. It, it's very difficult to do. Basically, I think it takes her a while to you know really kind of commit to doing it and and to be able to do it because I think she's she really finds it difficult. Um, you know, th- maybe there isn't an equivalent language to football. <laughs> always for everyone and I think so I think yeah. she doesn't have an easy in um, not that his is necessarily easy either but you know I, I don't think it's a conscious let's wait and see I think it's really uh, she has to step up in the end and she does but it's it's not an easy thing for her to do I think that it's about two people dealing with guilt and with trauma in a very very different way yes and he mm-hmm. tries to compartmentalise it and basically tries yes. to pretend that it doesn't exist we the audience don't know that Nyagak is not their daughter until a about we, it's about oh god, an hour in maybe. Yeah, more bit, than yeah. maybe Over it's, it's before Remy Weeks drops that that twist. But obviously, Rial knows from mm. the off. She knows what Ball has done. She knows that they are responsible for the presumed death. She doesn't know that Nyagak is dead until towards the end of the movie, for sure. Gets it confirmed in the spirit world, and so she's struggling. I think not maybe so much with the fact that there's a supernatural presence in their home, uh, and she's certainly struggling, of course, with the. The horrible way they're being treated, and you know the the attempts to assimilate, and the the casual and less casual racism that she experiences on a on a daily basis. That mm-hmm. you know that that horrible woman who sits in the in the house next door and just silently judges them, and then not so silently judges them. You know, everywhere they turn, there's someone saying something that diminishes them at some point. But I think she's also wrestling with her husband as well. Mm-hmm. She's wrestling with her feelings towards him, and I think that's what that's what the movie turns on. Well, and I think the movie turns on ultimately she decides that he is worth fighting for yeah. and he is worth saving ultimately. And she has to wrestle with all those feelings that she has towards him, you know, presumably, you know, guilt, anger, repulsion, loathing, because, you know, what he did was a terrible, terrible thing. 
But eventually, but it also saved their lives, and she has to. She has lives. to reckon with this. I think a portion of the same guilt that he has. You can see it in yeah. her eyes on the bus. I think yeah. Wunmi Masaku is is extraordinary as well in this. I mean, yeah. But it's like you say, it's really layered. I think all of those emotions are there. I think they are a team, and they're acting like a team, but they're also less of a team maybe than they ever have been before because of this horrific secret between them. I mean, and and it's interesting watching it back. You know that scene in the doctor's office. When she's asked, do you have any children? Initially, you just think it's it's horrific because the doctor has just, you know, stumbled into her grief and stumbled into her mm. uh, losing a daughter. And and it's only later, obviously, you realise the doctor has stumbled into her guilt and stumbled into that different kind of trauma. But she plays it so it works either way, mm. and it's and it's incredibly powerful to watch either way. I would only add to that that I just love how the moment where she does sort of change her mind and then decide to help her husband is visualized mm. um, with uh, Nirgak sort of coming through the wall and then sort of her making the decision to go and help and uh, yeah. Nirgak disappearing again. I think that's just brutally done. And in, in, in mm. so many other films, they wouldn't go to that level to have that flip. I, I, lo I love they did that here. Another thing which I just wanted to mention, just for me as a person of African descent, it's mm -hmm. nice to have a film in which people are using sort of their natural African accents and sort of mm -hmm. seeing and hearing that on screen. It's just a rare thing. And it's always something which I just enjoy watching, uh, especially sort of in the mainstream film like this. So go on for that as well. <laughs> Dinka is the uh, South Sudanese uh, ethnic group to, to whom they belong. And that is the actual language as well that they're, they're using in the movie. And in fact, the Apeth is taken, I think, from Dinka folklore, the idea of the Apeth, which is, you know, in, in the idea of a night witch, the idea mm -hmm. of something like this, a, a demon that attaches itself to people's psychological trauma is not new. But this version of it, this actual word Apeth is, is really new. And I, I thought it was a really effective, unsettling screen baddie. Mm. What did you guys think? Did not like. Definitely very effective. <laughs> tell you that much. Goodness me. Yeah. Did, did not like in the, in that it was effective. Yes. <laughs> did you have to go to, <laughs> to the Gap clear. and buy new pants? <laughs> no, because I watched it in the daytime. <laughs> yeah, Amon actually messaged me the night before and was like, "I started watching this," and then went then was like, "Nope." And he, so we watched it in the morning. We did the podcast, didn't you? Yeah, no, I, wa I watched this for the first time in a, a late at night in my darkened office. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was an interesting experience. But then again, I, like I said to you, I, I think it stops going for scares. And the scares it goes for are really effective. That first mm. time that the, uh, the spirit uh, manifests itself as Nyagak and is behind Ball when he's looking at the wall. And yep, he that just was the moves. one that got me to turn it off the first oh, time. Oh my God. Yeah. He just moves and you see her going... <laughs> behind him no thank you thank mm -mm. you very much I am <laughs> no, no. totally fine Take let me just watch Peter Crouch's greatest goals for Liverpool <laughs> here on YouTube just to calm down from the experience and, and yeah there's so many other great bits like the, the bit where he's scrambling for the light switch and yeah but it's it's all very very effective and really really um, well choreographed and well orchestrated chump scares I have mm. to say but at a certain point the matter of factness with which Rial in particular greets the Night Witch, I think, infects the movie as well. And um, even Ball recognizes it in mm. that sort of communion he has with the Night Witch. You can't, you can't hurt me. There's nothing you can do to hurt me. You know, sticks and stones mm. may break my bones. Have a way at it. And I think that in a way, and deliberately so, which I think is interesting, if, see mm. if you guys agree with me on that, it divests um, the Night Witch of some of its power in the final confrontation. I think that's good. I think... I think by that point, you've realised that, I mean, to, to be incredibly cliched, the real horror is within us. You know, I, I think that's the the point of the movie. And I think that's a point well made that I think that, that it makes really effectively because it's not, the question is not whether a monster will come and take him away because of mm -hmm. what he did. The question is whether he can live with what he did um, and, and mm -hmm. whether they can build new lives after all they've been through. And I think that's a far bigger question and a far more powerful way to end your film maybe than 
you know, with Giant Scary Monster Eats Bad Man or Good Man or, you know, Desperate Man, however you want to describe him. Yeah. I, I just think that, you know, we've seen that and I'm not sure we learn anything from it. We're not, you yeah. know, that's leaving our fate, if you like, to outside forces when actually what's difficult is to just be a human in the world and live in it. And and that's what he has to try and do after all, all they've been through. Well, all right. I think we're pretty much there. Uh, mm. Just a couple of things I wanted to talk about very, very quickly. Um, Matt Smith, I think, is yeah. is pretty good in a, in a supporting role, uh, which could have been thankless. Um, and he infests this guy. Mark is his name. Mm. Uh, he infests this guy with a sort of uh, ambiguousness, I think. Mm. And ambiguity might be even the better word because I'm pretty sure ambiguousness is not a word. But <laughs> he infests him with an ambiguity. So uh, from the off, they are subjected to a series of microaggressions and casual mm. racism, and they're just seen. And you know, when they're being processed at the uh, at the phys- facility initially, the people processing them couldn't give less of a shit. Really yeah. couldn't. Mm-hmm. Even then, when they when they meet Mark, initially you're just thinking, okay, we're going to be all right now because it's Doctor Who, and it's, <laughs> it's going to be fine, and he's going to be one of the good guys. And I think ultimately he does come down on their side, and he does try to help them to an extent, but he also uses very loaded language, like he mm. says, "Then be one of the good ones," for example. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of loaded language from him. I think there's a lot of, as you say, just microaggressions, casual racism, thoughtlessness, just callousness from him. I, I don't think he, I, I think if you asked him, I don't think he'd consciously mean them any ill. 100%. But equally, I don't think he's aware of, you know, the fact that that doesn't matter really if he, if he sort of causes them ill. So uh, yeah, I don't think he's again them and i think ultimately he's probably pleased that they have you know patched up the house or whatever enough to continue living there and everything else i think he's got some sympathy for their situation i just don't think he's got the ability to express that properly yeah. maybe yeah yeah now he has the air of a guy who's done this a hundred thousand times before and for him it's just a complete norman you're completely right helen if you were to tell him that what he's doing what he's saying is wrong he would he would not believe you and the to, to to train him to start to think about that would be a mission. Um because he again this is just the norm for him and Matt Smith plays that very well. We're at a time where especially you know all, all throughout the world but especially in world leadership right now there's yeah. such a lack of caring for your fellow man and that's why films like this, which not only speak to, you know, real life horror, but just having empathy for your fellow man, like that, the, the, there's never been more of a time when decency has had such currency on screen. Mm. And films like this, which sort of, you know, lean into those sorts of themes, but also just whether whether it's a lack of it or having it in abundance, like um, you know, Helen knows this. I'm I'm I've started watching The West Wing. That thing is overflowing with decency, and just to still mm-hmm. see that on screen has a big impact right now. So you know, that's an, that's another reason I think why this film is resonating so deeply is because because the climate is coming out in. Anything else you want to talk about? Anything else you want to uh, raise from this film? I just can't wait to see what Remy McWeeks does next. I think this was an extraordinary debut. Mm-hmm. Yep, I will watch what he does next for sure. Um, but presumably through your fingers, right? And in the daytime, yes. <laughs> I, I've been reading uh, up a, a little bit on him, sort of in preparation for this, and I think Beth Webb actually mentioned it to me the other day, the, mm. the his Tickle Monster short. Um, I, haven't, I haven't pressed play on that yet, but apparently that is sensational as well. So I'm like, okay. Let's let's do a 15 minute spoiler special on that once you've seen it. <laughs> There's my incentive because you know I haven't been able to drum up the necessary braveness to press play on it yet. So maybe that yeah. might do it. I want it in writing that we're going to do the spoiler special. I don't want to do it and then, <laughs> wait, guys, spoiler special. What's happening? What's going on? What's going on? I'm a malevolent criminal mastermind. I'm going to lure you into a, a life of watching some really scary short films uh, like Rob you. Savage's Salt. Uh, or the original, you ever see the original short Mama that, that uh, inspired the film of the same name? That's really good. That's like a single shot, three minute short 
yeah, it's got mm-hmm. really good scares in it as well. Uh, mm-hmm. So yeah, short films are really, really good delivery systems for short, sharp shocks. I think that it's probably time to bring it all to a close. Uh, thank you once again to my two colleagues of such lethal cunning. I'm on Warman. Peace. Peace indeed, my friend. Peace be unto you, sir. And <laughs> Helen O'Hara. Toodaloo. And of course, thank you to you guys for subscribing to this. If you're listening to this, it means you are subscribing to our Spoiler Special channel. And for that, we are eternally grateful. And we hope to repay your faith and your hard-earned cash with loads and loads of Spoiler Specials. In fact, we'll be dipping back into the horror realm very, very soon with a retro Spoiler Special for one of my favourite movies of all time, George A. Romero's Dawn of the Dead with one of the film stars, Scott H. Reiniger, which I'm very, very excited about. Helen, Amon, do you fancy doing that? It's not that scary I'm on it's not that scary um, I find zombies very scary really I'm not I'm not sure if I want to take your word on what is and what isn't scary <laughs> right now Chris <laughs> it's set in the supermarket how scary could it be <laughs> see I feel like you're trying to play me here <laughs> Ge- genuinely look I don't want to you know turn into a digression here about Dawn of the Dead <laughs> have you guys seen it have you seen Dawn of the Dead mm, Helen you must have no. seen yeah, yeah back in the no, day okay. yeah I haven't gone back and seen it again though, because you know, scary. It's but that's not scary. It's not scary. It I is, just find it. I find it inherently scary. Zombies, zombie apocalypse is scary. Yes, just, conceptually, it's scary. Existentially, it's scary. They're the slow zombies. They're the ones that will get you uh, eventually if you let your guard down. They are basically coronavirus. That is what zombies are. I'm reconciling myself with that. Slow moving zombies are coronavirus. That's basically what it is. If you let your guard down, they will get you. If you get overconfident, they will get you. Uh, If you go to the supermarket without a mask, they will get you. That is basically the message of Dawn of the Dead. What a visionary George Romero was. But they're not scary. It's not a scary film. It's, you know, got a couple it's got a couple of jump scares, but they're move, they move so slowly. It's like, and you can hear them coming because they go, it's not about that. It's about these four people adapting to their new situation. And the gore is too cartoonish and technicolor anyway. So it's not, it's not, it's not, you'll love it. All I'm saying is if I watch this film and I have nightmares, you can expect a call at 2 a.m. in the morning. You better pick up that phone call. If I'm suffering, if I'm not getting any sleep, you're not getting any sleep. You better pick up that phone. Well, on that sexy note. <laughs> you, you all heard him. He's going he's gonna to send nudes at 2 a.m. Oh, my God. I, don't, I knew this as, was going to happen. As his lawyer, I don't think that's what he said. That's exactly what he said, Helen. That's exactly what he said, and I have the audio to prove it. Uh, on that note, I've said goodbye already. But anyway, goodbye to you guys, and we're going to see Don the Dead and Ghost Series 2, and which is genuinely scarier than Don of the Dead, and uh, as much as I love Don of the Dead. And what else have we got, Helen? What else have we got? we got the Mandalorian oh, like- spoiler specials. we got tons of yes, stuff. every week. Oh my and God, we got spoiler specials coming out of our ears. Other stuff happening. I don't remember. Other, <laughs> other things are definitely happening. I have a spreadsheet somewhere. It's 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 going to be absolutely off the chain. And of course, the regular podcast is out every single Friday. So listen to that. If you don't already, do like and subscribe and leave nice comments for us on, on iTunes as well. The five-star reviews always help. Never going to turn those down. Five-star reviews. Five-star reviews. That's enough from us. It's goodbye from me as well. I am off to watch, definitely, for real, Peter Crouch's greatest goals for Liverpool Football Club. It's not going to take too long. He only scored 22. God bless him. Still. He's big. He's red. His feet stick out the bed. Peter Crouch. Peter Crouch. He's big. Come on, join in. His feet stick out the bed. Peter Crouch. Peter Crouch. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.